You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So as we come to our verses today in chapter 8, let's remember where we are in the plan in chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, the Lord gave a bit of a progression for how things were going to go, right? He said he would hedge in Israel and remove the good things from them. Remember, he had given the good things to them, and then he would hedge them in, remove them from him, from them, and then all in an effort to return Israel to him. And we are in the stage in this chapter, it sounds there's a lot of warning in this chapter, right? A lot of bad things in this chapter. But we're in the stage of God removing the good things from Israel in their rebellion. But however, remember that the terrifying things of this chapter also culminate in chapter 2 when God says, I will allure her and speak kindly to her and bless her. And so my plan today is ambitious, but I want us to see first the close details of the chapter in chapter 8 with a broad connection to God's covenant that they were under and the parallel to Christ's church now in the new covenant, with the whole of Scripture resounding call to love God and repent. Overall, that us, Christ's church now, may look at the law of God and see its benefit and its good for us. Overall, that we may see God's law and see its benefit and its good for us now. So verses 1-4 through open with, Put your, trumps, put your trumpet to the lips, saying, Sound the alarm. No longer dwell in ease and prosperity. You can hear a great warning from Hosea, saying, Your enemy comes swiftly. Assyria, your enemy comes quickly. And remember, this is one of the prophet's tasks, as he gave to Ezekiel in chapter 3, which records this saying, God saying to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, whenever you hear a word of warning from me, you shall give them a warning from me. So this is the very task of Hosea, in fact, to warn of something that may come. God speaks regarding an enemy that will come against Israel. And what does it say? It will even come against the house of the Lord. The place where the people sacrifice to regain fellowship and sacrifice for sin. And why will it come against the house of the Lord? Because they have transgressed God's covenant and rebelled against Him. God makes this conviction of Israel plain and then expands upon it in verses 2-4. to Remember the rebellion had started in the heart. And as we've been learning, this is always where it starts and then it grows outward. It grows outward. It starts with a false appeal. Remember from last week in chapter 7, verse 14, they, uh, God said, They do not cry out to me from the heart. Instead, what they cry out to me is for the things that God has taken from them, from the very provision. So they don't cry out from the heart. They cry out because of the gifts taken away. And this week in verse 2, God hears the people cry out to Him saying, God, we of Israel know You. But is that true? Please see the problem with this great cry. They cry out to God while rejecting the same God's law and His covenant. Again, this is the loving provision God brings, yet hating His reign. This is loving His protection, yet hating His word. This is akin to saying, Lord, Lord, to Christ with our lips, and yet having a heart far from Him. 
And though they say we know God, Hosea 4 records, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they reject it. They have forgotten the law of God, and more so, what we may say more plainly is they have ignored it. So as they appeal to say, we know you, God, with their very actions, they in fact say, no, we ignore it, we reject it. And how have they also acted against God? They've set up kings. If you go do a cursory look at 2 Kings, it's nothing but chaos, right? They have set up kings without God's appointing, and then they break them down and depose them again without God's appointing. And we've hit this many times throughout our series in Hosea, but they have made idols from the, from, for themselves from the blessing of God's prosperity, taking the very things that God blessed them with and crafting them into an idol which God abhors. They hew cisterns for themselves, says Jeremiah. Please see the expansion from the heart sin. They say, we know God, and yet with their actions, they testify that they do not know God. They the sin always starts in the heart until the rebellion is manifested in the hands. And so we see also here, Israel has rejected the good, so the enemy will pursue him. Remember from chapter 5, that when Israel saw their sickness that God was giving them, they even pursued after who? They pursued after Assyria for healing. The same Assyria that would now pursue them. 2 Chronicles 28 records this, if you'd turn there with me, please. 2 Chronicles 28, chapters 1 through 4. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Do you see Ahaz is leading him to do the very things that the nations around them are doing, which God abhors. So we see Hosea say it. Remember, Ahaz was a king at the time of Hosea. So Second Chronicles is recording the very things that Hosea is alluding to. So let's go on to chapter, uh, the same chapter, Second Chronicles 28 to verse 16. Verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. When why? For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away the captives. And the Philistines had made raid on the cities of the Shephelah and the Negeb of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh and some cities that I can't pronounce and some villages with Timnah and its villages and Gimzo with its villages and they settled there. Why? For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. Why? For he had made Judah act sinfully and been unfaithful to the Lord. So, Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. So we see that instead of Assyria helping Israel, they in fact came to afflict them. So see the progression. They had been given good gifts. 
they turned and then God takes the gift away like we learned in chapter 2 so that Israel would return to him. But then instead of returning to him, they turn to Assyria. Then Assyria, instead of helping them, in fact, afflicts them. So what we're reading in Second Chronicles is the very record of what Hosea is saying what would happen. And as we think about this, would God do anything else? Would he see fit to allow Israel to be satisfied by anything else? So isn't it good that in fact, in fact they were afflicted by Assyria instead of being satisfied by them? So the response, let's move on to uh, verses 5 through 7. And I'll read those for us real quick. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. And if it were to yield, strangers would devour it. So the response of God to verse 2 when Israel says, we know you, God, the response of God is, no, I reject you. And his anger burns against you. Astonished, Hosea says, see this in verse um, verse 6, he says, for it is from Israel. Another translation will say, and this thing even is done in Israel. This thing the surrounding nations do is now done in Israel. We read that in chapter in 2 Chronicles 28, right? This thing that the nations had done around them is even done in Israel. God had rejected the calf that the wicked king of Israel, Jeroboam, had set up and placed in Samaria. And what he said in 1 Kings, we read, it says, Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. This is what one of the kings had taught Israel to do. And Do you remember when Aaron did this very thing? When Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, what did Aaron do? He fashioned a calf for them. And the very words he said was, Behold, O Israel, your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt. We also know that at this time, the people had great material blessing. So both did Aaron take the good things that Egypt gave them as payment on the way out and fashioned a calf out of that. So Israel is now taking the blessing of God and fashioning it into a calf, saying the very same words. They both made idols from a material abundance God had given them. So we see the idolatry is the same. The string is the same. You see, the people still accepted the good from God coming from the land of Egypt while rejecting His holiness and His rule and His word. And this is the common sin. This is the very common sin of man to love the provision of God, even poured out His common grace upon the world as Father and yet reject His rule as King. A common sin is to love the things of God while rejecting His authority over us. And so we see they were incapable of innocence. You hear that lament in his words. He says, how long will they be incapable of innocence? So let's first ask, who might be capable of innocence? You might say one who didn't know of the thing or who did it in ignorance. Is that what Israel was? Did they know the thing that they were doing? Were they aware of it? Did they do it in knowledge? Did they do it to be like the nations around them? I'd say yes. And did they, did they understand that this was against God? Did they simply do it in ignorance? 
They also appeal to God. Remember, they said, we know God, and yet they're also going to do all of these other things. So we say, no, these people could not be capable of innocence. As the people, they were neither ignorant of God nor of what they were doing. Remember in chapter 5, verse 15, as they have cried out to God for his blessing to return, he says, God says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. We see also, surely Israel has sown to futility, sown to the wind in futility, and so futility they will reap. They have the good things now, but remember from chapter 2, the Lord will remove the good things and hedge them in. Why? To bring Israel back to Him. And please hold on to this point. Read at the end of verse 7, it says, if the standing grain has no heads, and hear this, and if it shall yield no, if it shall yield no flower, I'm sorry, if it were to yield, strangers would devour it. So if material blessing even came to Israel, it would be for another's consumption. And we will come back to this point. Please see the reversal here in the contrast to the promised land. When Israel was to go into the promised land, God said to them, when you go into homes that you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, the good things that you didn't have that someone else made for your blessing, now see the reversal. Even if you have a plant that produces a fruit, it will be for another. So what did this idolatry reap them? We learned in an earlier sermon that Israel was in great material blessing in this time. Therefore, their idolatry reached them not a continued blessing, but a coming wrath. In fact, the whirlwind. And so as we come to verse, verse 8, it says, Israel is swallowed up. Please see the connection. As the grain only would sprout to feed a stranger, so Israel from the root of their corruption would now sprout up to be swallowed by another nation. There's great connection and imagery here. Great reversal of God's promise. Israel had supposedly made herself a beautiful vessel. Verse 8 says, Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, and though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. You see, the nations even abhor Israel's beauty such that she had made herself beautiful to be accepted by the nations. So we see, as we read about Ahaz, that Israel adorned herself even to be appealing to the nations, maybe worn the same clothes, or you could attach much imagery to it. She has adorned herself to draw the eye of a false lover. But we read, even when Israel is in their arms, this false lover even hates her. As we, read, as we just read in Second Chronicles, Israel in her prideful idolatry has grown despondent in the care of the nations whose idolatry they even imitated. And Israel, headstrong like a wild donkey, will instead be, instead of being assisted by Assyria, will now owe a burden of heavy taxes being so afflicted by them. And as Israel desired to act like the nations, so God saw fit to give them to the nations. This is another reaping of the whirlwind. He gave them over is the tune at the end of 2 Chronicles. I want to read that real quickly. Don't, don't turn there. I'm going to ask you guys to turn to like 
the entire Bible at some point in this sermon, so I'll turn to this one. Second Chronicles 36, 15. Listen to this and see if it sounds like the prophets. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. This is the fulfillment of the progression that we are reminded of. Here the progression. They first rejected the knowledge of God for heart's idols, which God judges by giving them over into iniquity and then into more iniquity with passion, leading to finally open idolatry, not just the idolatry of the heart, and finally to a removal of God's presence and judgment. And please see from this section as well that as Israel is rejected by her false lovers, there is no brotherhood and wickedness. There's no companion and idolatry. And hear this. Israel was God's chosen people, His possession. And no matter what idolatry they put on to win the affection of the surrounding nations, they would never truly win their affections because Israel's true husband, God, is a consuming fire and a jealous God. Even these nations knew as they looked upon Israel trying to dress herself as these nations that she is not one of them. She is not one of them. And so we see that the one purchased by Christ will never find a home in sin, but only among the redeemed. Remember from what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he said, those born of God bear the scent of death to those dying and to life to those living. In our last section of verses 11 through 14, I'll read them real quickly. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and devour her strongholds. They supposedly, remember, I'm sorry, remember at this time that Israel had apparently and evident, uh, eventually put altars to other gods in the house of the living God. They supposedly worshiped God while also keeping these abominations in the same area. And so the thought goes that if I only continue in the form of godliness, then I may functionally deny its power. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Paul's warning to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3? said in the last days those will arise who continue in the form of godliness while denying its power. And why does the Lord take no delight in their sacrifice? He says that. We've established it's that their hearts were far from them. And he even mentions eating the sacrifice. And the Lord says, I reject it. Because for in eating it, you may say they are appropriating the benefit that God would give them in the blessing of fellowship. But still, even the action, even the ingesting of this sacrifice cannot reach the heart, for the heart is far from God. So even this action that would be external to you and then eventually would be ingested internally cannot change this heart, for it's far from God. The form does not secure the benefit if the heart takes no pleasure in it. 
We're going to get to look here in just a minute at some great contrasts in our passage, but remember, instead of the Lord delighting in him, the same act that ought to bring delight brings a remembering of iniquity. Remember when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees when the disciples were pulling off grains of head on the Sabbath? It's recorded in Matthew 12. What did he say? He said, if you knew what this means, and then he quotes Hosea 6.6. He says, if you know what this means, I delight in loyalty and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And so we may say this as a bit of a summation. The outward act alone isn't God's desire, but rather the heart which will then love the acts of worship and love His Word and love His law. The outward act alone is not God's desire. And so it, we also see that Israel builds palaces to His own glory. Judah thinks the fortified cities are their refuge and their safety, but God has always been their keeper. So please see this as a little bit, again, of a summation. Israel has taken refuge in only the provisions, not the God of them. Hear this, refuge in palaces, cities, altars, actions, all of these things that are manifestations of God's blessing while rejecting God. So they built cities, they built altars, they did all of these things, they took refuge in all of them, and we see systematically God is tearing them down, tearing them down, breaking them down to return them to Him. We must keep this before us that the reason all this is happening is because of idolatry that starts and is seated in the heart. Remember, Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. If you go back and read, you will see that God blessed Israel this way such that they would be a picture to the rest of the world of what God's blessing looks like for them. But now they are a mere picture of His wrath. But in any case, whether in blessing or in wrath, they are still a picture of God's ownership. That this is still a nation that God loves and that God owns. And so we see that judgment from God, even in this case as a punishment for Israel, is in fact a good thing. It is a good thing. Remember from chapter 2, he says, After punishment, I will allure her, and she will remember and come back to me. This punishment has been promised and is in fact part of the covenant God made with these people. And so let us consider as we think about judgment, as we think about wrath, that is in fact kind of God to warn of wrath. But it is not unjust for him to have wrath. Remember he said of Ezekiel, when I give you a word of warning, you will speak it. So it is not unkind for God to have this wrath. It is in fact kind to God to warn so here's some, great, here's some applications and some contrasts that we can see in our chapter today. They build more altars for sin, not commanded by God, therefore sin increases. And God gave them His law, communicating to them His nature and His goodness, and yet because of their darkness and lack of understanding, the law is regarded as strange and foreign. Remember, God gave them the law as their identity, as to make them unique, as to set them apart, as to be this great thing that would show God's favor to them. The law with the sacrifices and the priesthood all made Israel stand apart. And now what is it called? Strange and foreign. As they sacrifice with an evil heart, 
They profane what should be their intercession. And so we see over and again, the result is not a covering for sin for fellowship, but rather a remembering of sin for punishment. And as they sacrifice in profanity, hear this from Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool for my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I might rest? For my hand has made all these things, so all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But I will look to this one, at one who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. And hear the contrast here. But the one who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a person. The one who sacrifices is a lamb. A lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. The one who offers a grain offering is like one who offers pig's blood. One who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delight in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments and bring on them what they dread. Because I called and no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. Instead, they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. You see, even the actions, God has noticed the actions, the sacrificing of the lamb, giving the grain offering, doing the burnt incense, but he's saying, they do not delight in my words, they do not delight in me. So even the action itself is profaned because of the evil heart. And so the very thing that ought to appease the wrath of God instead incites wrath upon them. And why? because of the hardness of their heart. Remember, the sacrifices were in fact a confession of sin and were a gift to Israel to remain in fellowship with God. And as the sacrifice of the Passover led to their freedom from Egypt, so now the same Passover sacrifice done with a profane heart leads them back to captivity as he says, they will return to Egypt as they have forgotten God who is their shield and fortress and living water, so they have built their own fortresses and hewn out their own cisterns and ultimately God will reject their own false security. Ultimately, why? Don't lose chapter 2. Ultimately, to drive them back to Him, the true source of water, the true security, the true God. And so remember our plan today. We've now looked at the close details of the chapter. And now I want to move us to a broad connection to God's covenant. Let's remember that the covenant that Israel was underneath at this time. Hopefully I'm not going to lose my spot here. But please everybody turn with me to Deuteronomy 4 and long passage reading warning here for all of you. Please listen here with a close ear that we may hear the word of God and much of its fulfillment in our text today and lay it against the idols in our heart. Deuteronomy 5, 6-21 through 21. We know these as the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 11, you shall not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day 
to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates so that your male male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's law for God's people which made them unique and separated them from the rest of mankind, remember, to be a testimony to the world. Now turn back to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, verse 21. I'll read. Deuteronomy 4, 21. Furthermore, this is is Moses saying before he gives them again, reminds them of the Ten Commandments. He's speaking of the warning of this covenant which he is about to show them. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land your Lord is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, and I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of the good land. Hear the warning. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Does this sound like what we're hearing today in Hosea? Remember Moses is speaking this to them before they go into the promised land. Verse 28, And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Remember that from Hosea 5. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So he's giving them a warning. And then he says, but God will not forget the covenant. Though you forget the covenant, God will not forget the covenant. Verse 32, for ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on earth. Ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was heard of. 
Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and yet still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself among the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that you might know that the Lord is God. There is none other beside Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Verse 40, Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So this is the law that God had given to make his people unique, to set them apart, to be his possession. This is now the warning that, that Moses had issued to them before that. Did you hear all of the similarities in the warnings in Hosea, all of the fulfillment? So remember that God had warned them of wrath to come. He had warned them with the prophets. He had warned them back to Moses. He had warned them this whole time. And now, let's turn to Deuteronomy 28. This one's pretty quick, I think. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, lists the curses that will come upon Israel for their disobedience before God. Remember, this is the covenant. This is the promise with God that Israel is underneath and with God at this time. This would have been ringing in their ears. Deuteronomy 28, I'll read 31 through 38. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. Here's the point. You shall labor for another's harvest, your daughters, produce, labors, animals, etc. All the manifold gifts of God will be for another's consumption. That's what 31 through 38 sounds like. Do you remember that in Hosea 8? He says, and the standing grain will be for another's consumption. And then he says, even Israel is swallowed up. Moses is saying this, remember, before the people even go into the promised land. 28, 49 through 50. The Lord your God will bring a nation against you from afar away from the end of the earth. How? Swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand a hard-faced nation who you shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Assyria is described as an eagle that will come upon Israel. Deuteronomy 28, 63-64 records that the Lord will take from you what you have. Is this not the warning of God in Hosea 2? And ultimately, Hosea, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 28, 68 says, and the Lord your God will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise you you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves to sail, offer for yourself, offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. The reason I'm pointing all this out to you is to say that we read this in Hosea, we hear these great warnings, and we may think, is this the only time? 
Is this the warning that's just now arrived to Israel? But Moses spoke these things to Israel. And he said, before you have all of this bountiful blessing of God, before you have all of these manifestations of His ownership, take care. Don't forget the Lord your God. Keep your heart. Watch your heart. This is the covenant that Israel broke. And we say, yes, God was faithful in His covenant. For He kept it, did He not? Did He not provide the warning? and then keep it. And even in Deuteronomy 31-32, through 32, you can go read it for yourself after this, God gave Moses a song for Israel to sing. So He gave them all of the warning, warnings in this great speech by Moses. And then in Deuteronomy 31-32, through 32, He even commanded them to sing a song that would be a witness and a testimony against them. So God gave them the warning and proclamation, and then He, in fact, gave them a song, maybe something that they could sing as they walked, that would bear witness to everything that they've been instructed here. Has God not provided ample warning and caution for Israel? In the same way, Hosea 8.12 records that Israel had regarded God's law as a strange and a foreign thing. You see, this same covenant that blessed Israel through God's promise would now curse them in disobedience. And so now let's look at the parallel to Christ's church in the new covenant. So we've looked closely at the close details. We've now seen the covenant that Israel is underneath. And now I want you all to see, all of us to see the parallel to Christ's church in the new covenant. And as we've been learning this whole time, we've confessed that the heart is the seat of idolatry. It harbors the affection of worship, as Pastor Adam has brought up many times, it harbors the affection of worship before the hands even make it. It harbors indifference towards the act of sacrifice while the hands even do it. And it provides the soil and the comfort to the rebellion that eventually manifests outwardly. This is the heart. So what does mankind need? Do we need an outward law for which us to conform to? Many times we say, if I just knew what to do, I'd do it. Jackson and I were talking about this yesterday. If we just had it published right here, we'd do it. But we see that we have idolatry in our heart. So mankind needs a new heart. So we have the better covenant. So let's now return to Jeremiah 31, 31, and hear the great relief in this. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I'll tell you where I'll stop reading this time. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, so I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And hear this. Hear the contrast. Remember, he said, we said that the sacrifices brought a remembering of iniquity. The sacrifices that should have brought intercession brought a remembering of iniquity. But what does God say at the end of verse 34? He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
lest we think too detachedly from what we've learned, let's see the continuation so far. Remember the holy law of God, His holy and righteous standard for all mankind, all of people. Remember Noah. Hebrews 11 records that because of his reverence for God and building the ark, he condemned the world and its sinfulness. What does that mean? It means that when he built the ark and believing of God, that that it was a condemnation to the world's sinfulness. Should we say that as Israel, as God's possession, the way that they behaved and the way that they carried themselves and loved God, would that not be a condemnation to the world's sinfulness? But instead we see that instead of the condemnation to the world's sinfulness, they started to act like the world. Remember Hosea 8 saying, in Israel even this is done. Remember of the salt that Christ spoke. He says that you are the salt of the world and the church is to be the salt and yet if it loses its saltiness, what good is then that salt? Remember the warning in Revelation that Christ gives to the church in Ephesus. He warned them that they had lost their first love for God and He warned them that He may go and snatch their lampstand. And what does He say at the end? Unless they repent. So now we've arrived at the whole of Scripture resounding call to love God and to repent. Do we do this or simply look like the world? The world may confess with their mouth, but they will not turn from their sin. They may rejoice in another struggling with their sin as well, but far be it from them to gaze into the law of God, which David called pure and clean and holy and instructing to the mind and feel great terror before the holy God and repent. Remember, Pastor Adam reminded us last week that God's eyes are roaming the earth. He sees everything that we have done and this even in Israel. And so please follow this logic. If we think little of God's covenant, we will think little of our sin. So then if we think little of our new nature that resists sin, that concerned us little. We elevate the downstream effects of being in Christ while ignoring the primary work of Christ. We may elevate the provisions of God while ignoring the ownership of God. We may elevate the, prime, the effects of being in Christ rather than, ignore, rather than believing and understanding His primary work as Lord in our life. And the primary work is saving us from our sin and regenerating us with a new nature indwelled by the very Holy Spirit of God. We, think, we may think little of following Christ because we think little of our sin. And so what do we do? If this is our heart, we confess and return to our mire. Peaceful in our confession rather than angry at the sin which still besets us. But church, let our holy anger as we see God's law and as we see our sin, let our holy anger then be unleashed against our sin to wage war against that sin instead by the means given by the Holy Spirit. So we drown it in repentance. We drown that sin that still remains that we all know of that persists in our heart. We drown it in repentance. And then we choke its supply by avoiding the fountainhead by which it is fed, not by inches, not by feet, but by miles. What does the, the Word say? We flee from idolatry. So pray to the Lord to examine our hearts, church. Are you a formalist in these things? 
Are you zealous to perform the ritual, read the book, hear the talk, drop the money in the plate, post the Bible quote, listen to the right song, and have a heart far from God? What we've learned today is that a heart far from God indeed loves the things of God, but not His Lordship over our lives. Are you zealous to add the worship of God to the worship of many other gods, effectively placing an altar in your heart to God and an altar to other gods and clamor for the approval of men? And as we've said, will those gods truly satisfy? Are you zealous to read the Word of God solely for another? When you read it, your eyes immediately go to that person. And what does that do? That carves a channel around your heart where the streams of living water then cannot go after your heart, but you carve a canal to another person. You let it bypass you. The Lord takes no delight in the circumcision of the hands, lest that circumcision reaches the heart. As Pastor Adam said and reminded us last week, we hear the first commandment to love God, and we know that when we do not love God, it is from all of of these other idolatries manifest from that first commandment. And so we've asked this each week, are you drinking the bitter water of God hemming you in? Are you seeing the singe of your clothes as you dance around the edges of hell's hearth, as you do not avoid that fountainhead by, in, by miles, but you avoid it by inches? You're just trying to walk right around it. And are you laboring in idolatry for the bread that only another eats? Flee. Fly to God and to the means He provides in our Saviors. Fly from your lost pursuit, no longer longing for the paths other than the one which He's graciously provided. Turn from these idols so created and drink from deeply from the goodness of Christ who died for us while we were yet sinners, not while we were yet good. Turn from the words of this world and back to the 10,000 precepts He graciously provided, delivered by the Holy Spirit, so protected by providence over these thousands of years, available to us in many, many ways such that we are left without excuse for our distraction and lack of understanding. And let us now be specific to our time. Worshiping at the idols of pornography, and the wandering eye and the daydreaming mind, as Pastor Adam said last week, bring this idol and the desires underneath it. Bring it to God. Don't flee from it. Don't flee from bringing it to God. And then when you bring it to God, do you then break the Samsung or Apple or magazine calf in hatred for the sin and love for God Or do we carve out an exception for its many uses? Break the means that the lust is fed. Drinking to excess. Do you break the bottles and smash them in hatred for sin and love for God? Or carve out an exception saying the Bible doesn't prohibit moderation and it's only in moderation, yet you know in your heart that it is not in moderation that you consume it. In hatred for the sin and love for God, break the means by which the lust is fed. And adults and parents forsaking, forsaking leading your homes, do you break the idols of vanity and selfish time and fear of qualifications? 
Or do you carve out for yourselves an exception of, I'm tired, or the game is on, or I'm not a pastor? Break the idols. Remember, the covenant Moses gave was to a generation that was to teach the next generation. And young people, do you break the idols of perpetual adolescence, pride, idle hands, and the stranglehold of your well-crafted social media presence, carving out for yourself an exception based upon the ever-lowering expectations of the great deceiver, Satan? Break the means by which the lust is fed. In our older generation, be not guilty of avoiding the younger generation, me included, in fatigue or selfish pride or becoming a perpetual vacationer. We desperately need to see your race as you run it to the end and strengthen our endurance now. And hear this church, each of these carving out and exceptions that we make Each time we carve out an exception for our own sin, we are in fact carving out a new idol that our eyes are turning to. Every time that we debate with ourselves and we we make these little exceptions, we're taking the chisel to the hammer of God's good provision for us and then making an idol. This too must be broken down, ground into dust as Moses did for Aaron's idol, and then poured into the Jordan River, remember, where Christ was baptized, and all of the filth that everyone had been baptized in. And what did he do? He took it upon himself. So we take all of these carved out exceptions, all of these idols, we ground them to dust, we break the means by which the lust is fed, we bring it to Christ which He bathed Himself in, all of our sin, all of our iniquity, and He paid for it. And what did He do it? To put its hold upon us to death. And what good thing has He withheld? Like in Hosea 2, which He will not again bestow on a rightly ordered affection. He too will do this. As we see our sin and we see God's law, He will change your affection. And that's our point, is that the benefit of the law of God as we look at it is good for us. What joy will not attend a heartfelt love for God? Remember when Christ went to the cross, Pastor Brett reminded us, why did He go? For the joy set before Him. He also said, deny yourself and follow me. In this saying, in this way, deny yourself for the joy that I offer in following me is better than the despair that you will feel in losing the pleasure that you thought you couldn't go without. And what satisfaction is to be in God's care? So what is the great exhortation? Abide in God's Word that you may grow in respect to salvation. That's the, that's the promise. First Peter 2 records that. Do not reject His teaching applied to your heart and every affection. The psalmist says, I have hidden your Word in my heart that I may not sin against you. And pray to the Lord of hosts that He may revive us. This He has promised He would do for Israel as we read and Go back and read chapter 2. Read the second half of it. And in Christ, through the sealing of the Holy Spirit, our God did and will continue to do. And so, let's tie this all together. Church, please see with me how God's law is a benefit to us. 
So we see the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. Church, see the law and let it pierce you for sin. Let it pierce you for grief for sin. Look at it. Go read Psalm 119. How many times does David say, I love your ordinances and I love your law? Knowing that that conviction that pierces your heart in the quiet moment is a conviction that was a dagger that pierced Christ's body. Do you remember what Christ or what Scripture calls those with a hard heart? Paul describes them as having a seared or cauterized conscience. 1 Timothy 4, we are reminded that Israel had hard hearts. So you could say that the pinprick of grief to the conscience, like a surgeon's needle, could not do its work of healing because the heart was hard. Thus, they needed a new heart. So we say yes to godly repentance of a new heart, not to worldly sorrow, which only produces a callous, as Pastor Adam talked about. Please hear this from 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1 and then 8 through 11. Please follow with me. Therefore, sorry, 2 Corinthians 10, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. And I'm reading through NASB, and if it's up there, it'll be ESV, because I can't convert for some reason. Here's verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I do, did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice that you were, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God that you may not suffer loss in anything through us. And hear this, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces what? It produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has now produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment of wrong. Hear this, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So did you see that? Paul says, because of the promises in Christ, turn away from sin. And then he says that the sorrow of God that produces repentance, produces vigilance and godly fear to watch over ourselves that we take care of the things that come from our heart, ultimately leading to what? Innocence before God. This is the great relief because of Christ and the God-given gift of repentance, innocence. So what is the difference between Old Testament sacrifice and New Testament repentance. I'll read this to you from Hebrews 10, 1 through 2. For since the law but is for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have been ceased to offer? Hear this. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness sins. In Christ, we can have a clean conscience. Isn't that incredible? Don't we long for this? As you see God's law and you let it pierce your heart and you have grief for your sin, you then turn to God in repentance. 
you can have a clean conscience. You can stand innocent before God. You can be repentant at the same time that you are innocent. You can have grief for sin at the same time that you understand you are accepted because of Christ. Hear this from Psalm 119, 5-7. This is David saying, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn from your righteous judgments. Church, flee from idolatry. Call it what it is. But don't flee from God's law. Don't flee from repentance. As we're reminded in Jeremiah 31, God has given us a new nature to love His law, to love Him, to follow Christ, no longer rebellion. This way, as David says, we can look upon God's law without shame, without judgment, without condemnation, but we can look on it knowing we are innocent. So church, carve no exception that blocks your way to repentance. Let nothing stand in your way. Let no sin be a barrier to you. Hear the frightening indictments of Israel and to the churches throughout the New Testament epistles. Apply the fear of God which the Bible resounds is the beginning of all wisdom. Remember, He is an all-consuming fire and this is good for us. He burns off the dross of our corruption and bringing, to us to, bringing us to Him in His marvelous light, compassionately and tenderly, saying, He will heal us. He who has torn us he will restore us in church. Will you take these idols that your heart loves before your hands make them? Will you take them to Christ? Do not delay. Take them to Christ now. Will you pray with me?